Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. Campbell Yule, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Thanks, Mark. It's uh, fantastic to be with you today. Campbell is trained as an architect and founder of Spaces, a tech startup building a new app for architects to help architects and engineers Designers quickly sketch their ideas, move them to model, create analyses, and and move to BIM faster than ever. I checked out the website. It's pretty amazing what this app can do. Campbell is the former global director of business development at Graphisoft in Budapest, uh, Hungary. He's been involved with Graphisoft and Archicad for a long time, and he's been involved in the development and the evolution of design technologies in the AEC space for at least three decades. And so. He has seen the entire evolution of design software, and now he's leading his own company, his own technology to add to that technology and improve it. And so I'm really excited about this conversation, Campbell. Thanks for joining me here today. Thank you. Look forward to answering a few questions and telling you a bit about my uh, journey to date. Yeah, I'd love that. I'd love to start at the beginning. Let's go back to uh, share your origin story. Go back to whenever you feel you want to go back. When did you discover your passion for architecture and the things that you do within the profession? Maybe even who or what inspired you to get started? Okay, that takes me a long way back. Uh, it takes me to a little place called Balclutha, which is 
almost right on the southern tip of New Zealand. It was a township of 4,000 people. We moved there as a family when I was just about to turn seven years old. Prior to that stage, my father had been finishing his surgical training. So we'd jumped around New Zealand and also had three years in the UK as he completed all of that training. And we ended up in a very small town. And during that time, I guess, don't see a lot of architecture in a small town. When I'm growing up, I remember two occupations that I wanted to be. One was a pilot and one was an architect. And funnily enough, when I was at secondary school, the New Zealand Air Force were retiring some of our jet trainers and they went around the country doing a performance for everyone. And and every male in my class wanted to be a pilot after after that <laughs> afternoon. I'm sure. And it certainly reinvigorated my wish to become a pilot. But in parallel with that, I was really enjoying technical drawing and art at school. Also enjoyed using my hands, doing a bit of woodwork. Those were sort of my optional subjects at secondary school. And really enjoyed all that technical building fascination plus the artistic element. I don't profess to be a great artist, but I certainly enjoyed exploring my capabilities, taking that subject at school. Do you know where the inspiration came from too? Because you said you wanted to be a pilot or an architect. Do you know where the inspiration came from to choose? Pilot's an easy one, right? Every kid wants to be a pilot or a race car driver, right? You look up or in an the astronaut. air and see these. Exactly. You see these planes flying over you. I want to do that, right? But architecture is a little bit different, right? So do you know how you were inspired to pursue that? That's a really interesting question. I, it'd be very hard to pinpoint, I guess, fairly limited knowledge of architecture. But I guess one of my very first introductions was actually through my woodworking teacher when our entire technology department in secondary school was going through a remodeling. And so I saw the plans for that and everything. And the builders who were taking care of that actually had a set of house plans for an architectural house they had designed in Dunedin, which is a a city in our north where I lived. And and I poured over these blueprints. They were traditional blueprints through the ammonia printer and everything. And it was a fascinating house and just the intricacy and the drawing quality just really, I guess, lit a spark for me as to, wow, I'd love to do that. Yeah. In parallel with all of that, which is sort of kind of a a key part of where I've come to, is that I was always dabbling with computers as well. I was always capitalizing my weekly allowance from mum and dad months or even years in advance to try to buy the the latest computer. I started with the the Sinclair ZX81 out of the UK with one kilobyte of RAM. It sounds absolutely (laughs) ridiculous these days. And and when I got to upgrade that to 16 kilobits, it was quite a momentous occasion. Went through the Commodores, the Vic-20s, the Ataris, Amigas. Yep. Finally, if we jump forward a little bit, I did actually get accepted into the New Zealand Air Force to undertake pilot training, but I was hoping at the same point to be able to do a university degree where they taught you to fly and paid for your university. And right at the last minute, that got cancelled. And so I decided, made the decision that actually I, I think I want to go and get a university degree. So I, I didn't enter the Air Force at that stage. Something I don't, I don't necessarily regret. Obviously, you can, you have these moments in your life and you can see it as a relatively big decision. I learned to fly and did my solo flight and everything. So I sort of took that passion as more of a hobby as opposed to an occupation. Yeah. So I sort of ticked that box and decided I'd go after architecture. And for a, a small kid from a small town in New Zealand, there's two places you can study architecture and they're both in the North Island. So they're both an hour or more away from home. I relocated to Auckland, city of about one and a half million people now, the concentrated city of of New Zealand. And that's where I picked up the study of architecture. And it was actually in my second year 
where we first got the opportunity to start exploring technology. And I had a, a lecturer who'd actually come out of Serbia and relocated during the conflicts of the early 90s. And he mentioned this product called Archicad. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. And he says, well, we've got it upstairs in the computer lab. So I went up, grabbed a manual, sat down and took the manual home that night and jumped back in the lab the next morning and then basically taught myself how to work Archicad 4, which is obviously about 22 versions ago now. <laughs> yeah, very early. So mid-90s, is that around? Yeah, mid-early 90s, around 94, 95. Yeah. And so I started working on that and I started getting a bit of criticism from my peers. There was obviously still this feeling that architecture was a craft and that the computers were going to take that away from people. And I had built up a fairly rudimentary site model just by stacking up, for those who are familiar with ArchiCAD or Revit, just a series of slabs in the same way as you'd create a, a foam cardboard model, Yeah, just slice after slice after slice. And someone saw a cross-section that I did through that site and they said, how long did that take you? And I said, well, it took me about three hours to model the site. And the person said, well, yeah, I could draw that section in three hours. I said, yes, but now I can go up there and I can create five more sections <laughs> and those will only take minutes. Where are you with creating those five sections? And, and even then, there was still a, a reluctance to be using computers and everything. Yeah, that was the same period that I was in architecture school. And computers were sort of a separate thing, right? It was a separate class and you were learning that technology, but it wasn't part of our workflow yet. We were still drawing by hand. Even when I got into my first job, it was still, we were in that transition, right? That firm that I was hired at was moving. That's why I was hired, actually. I was to help that firm move from hand drawing to CAD. So that whole period of time was this transition, this conflict between hand drawing and technology. Most definitely. And, and like you say, it was that computers felt like a parallel branch to the core of architecture. And, yeah. and there was a stereotype around it and bits and pieces. It wasn't malicious or anything bad like that, but it was just an interesting reaction to see yeah. and just the reluctance. And and I followed a lot of my classmates and they caught up with me subsequently and certainly said that I yeah. was a bit more <laughs> forward looking than they were and they wish they had right. paid attention to computers earlier in their career. So yeah. that was just a, a nice pat on the back, sort of like, okay, yeah. that was all pretty cool. Yeah. And that technology was also very immature at the time, right? It was, it was hard to learn. It was hard to use. It was very slow, right? And so there were lots of advantages and you could certainly look to the future or maybe even look backward and connect the dots of the advantage you had, you know, adopting it so soon. But it wasn't easy, right? That's why so many it of wasn't us easy. resisted it because it was very difficult. Yeah, no, I mentioned sections before, and, and I had a relatively straightforward site model, so sections could generate, but I still remember, and I was even talking to my head of development the other day, because he went through Auckland University just a, a few years ahead of me, and so we've got similar sort of stories around it. But you would actually, if you were working on a detailed building model, you'd set your section up and go for lunch, right? because it was going to take an hour for the computer to process it, and, and if you got it wrong, you were staring down the barrel of another hour. And <laughs> right. Yeah, Those were the joys. Everyone expects things instantly these days, but obviously we're talking about close to 30 years ago. So right. processes and, and computer programming and everything has evolved massively since there. So what's the timeline between that period where you first started with computers to sort of land at Archicad and Graphisoft and the work that you did with them? 
So what happened was I was a, a relatively naive student. I'd spent my life savings plus a, a bank loan to buy myself a, a computer that was capable of running ARCHICAD. It was about four and a half thousand New Zealand dollars, which is a little bit less valuable than a US dollar equivalent. But I rang up the ARCHICAD distributor at the time and said, I want to buy ARCHICAD, not having any understanding of the value of professional software. And he said, $89.90. And I was like, oh, sweet, $89.90. <laughs> and uh, dropped the phone on him just about when he said, no, 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 $8,990. And uh, I was like, okay, well, that's twice as much as I've just spent on my computer. Right. And I could hardly afford that. <laughs> yeah. But we struck up a conversation and he was interested to see the work that I'd been doing. Went and met with him and, and then during my studies, I started to write an ARCHICAD user newsletter once every three months. There was a small community of ARCHICAD users in New Zealand building. There was four or five of us who sort of created a pseudo committee where we would meet every once in a while, share tips and tricks and talk about things. And Murray, who was the founder of the ARCHICAD distributorship in New Zealand, just encouraged me to help with that and worked through that. At the end of the year, I said, I, I need some money, Murray. Have you got a summer job? And he said, okay. So I started working with him. He'd been talking all year about the fact that the business was growing enough that he felt that he needed someone technical to come on board. And he had this general feeling that because I was an architectural student that I'd be arty and not technical. But very quickly, he found that I was quite capable of crawling around architects' floors and wiring up peer-to-peer. -peer. Ethernet networks and, and Apple Talk networks and all those fun things again that we did in the 90s. Yeah. And Murray saw a balance there between actually an ability from the architectural side of things as well as the technical side. Murray had formed the business as a visualization studio. It was called CAD Image, obviously CAD Images. And he had undertaken a lot of projects on that, but prior to actually taking on the distributor for ARCHICAD. And at that point, the visualization dropped off. So I joined the team to restart that visualization. Without going way off tangent, we actually spun that business out as a separate entity in 2003. I remained involved with that for the last 19 years. And last year, we successfully were acquired by a UK visualization studio. So they now have this global visualization studio, which is nice to see that yeah. that story move to a new chapter. Exactly. And, and your experience of building that business and growing it to the point where you can exit and have that company continue to grow beyond you and you can move to do the next step for you. Yeah. Unfortunately, I was no longer a shareholder in that business. Oh, we had divested it separately, <laughs> but I'd stayed on board as a, as a strong advisor and I really enjoy the mechanics of business. So the, the actual the enjoyment going through that acquisition strategy and working with the new party, the company Build Media is based in New Zealand and the fact I'm in Europe here made it very useful because I could work very closely with the acquirer based out of London. And as a sort of a non-involved financial participant, I had a, had a perspective. And, and even when things got rough, I could actually take more of a mediation point of view and talk to them both and say, hey, look, guys, this marriage is made. It's going to be beautiful. Just got to get through these lumps and bumps. Everything's looking really good. And you could take a fairly impartial view to it, but tell which party needed to maybe bump their price up or people who didn't need to be so greedy or, or what have you. And, and that's part of business that I, I really enjoy, yeah. completely outside of architecture. I actually enjoy business, and I guess that's what's led me on my journey. Murray, who I mentioned earlier, is the founder of the ARCHICAD distributorship. He allowed me to buy him out, and so I bought him out, uh, started after five years and completed that buyout after 10 years. And then from 2006 to 2016, I continued to build 
the ARCHICAD business in New Zealand. And we had a really strong relationship with Graphisoft here in Budapest, which obviously we'll get to in a few years' time. Um, but during that 10 years, Graphisoft liked the fact that I was a pretty proactive entrepreneurial reseller, but they also liked the fact I was on the complete other side of the world. So if I tried something and it wasn't successful, yeah. it wouldn't have too much disruption. So we actually introduced ARCHICAD as a free student version six years before Graphisoft did it internationally. I'd been a strong advocate of that following my price <laughs> issue that I had with ARCHICAD as right. a student. Yeah. The $9,000 was never going to fly. We tried $900, got a couple of users. We tried $200, got a dozen users. We thought, let's make it free. <laughs> yeah. So eventually we did that for free. And that's a great strategy, right? Because the system that you learn as a student is likely the system that you will continue with for the rest of your career. And so it's a great business strategy to, to give it to students for free. Education's been a pillar that I've built and I've brought that to my space as business as well. I've seen the power of that, um, getting people when they're at the universities and exploring all sorts of software. We took it actually to a further step in New Zealand where we became the sponsor of the New Zealand Institute of Architects Student Design Awards, which was a highly lucrative, very competitive design system. I was blown away. We sponsored that for 10 years. And it was just amazing each year to go and look at the top five students from each of the three schools of architecture. And what I couldn't believe was that in fifth year of architecture, they work every hour they can. Right. But the awards had got to such a prestigious level, which was a, a really proud feeling to the extent that even once they finished their final design for their qualification, they then put in two or three more weeks worth of work because they were so keen to yeah. be rewarded with the Student Design Award. And, and rightfully so, the, the people who won that prize or, or were runners-up to that prize, or basically even all the finalists, essentially had their pick of the architectural jobs in New Zealand. So it was a lot of hard work, but it made me immensely proud to be able to put money into the grassroots. It's expensive being a student. You come out of university with massive loans, so you get a job that's going to make paying those off look like a very long-term yeah. <laughs> process. And so if you get a little bit of cash because you've won a top design award, it's, it goes a long way. And so that association with education is, is actually one of the pillars that I think is highly important to my previous successes. And it's a pillar that I'm building my new business on because I believe it's a, a successful piece to have in the puzzle. Yeah. So how did you land in Budapest working for Graphisoft? How did you go from the distributorship to working with the company itself? The exiting the New Zealand business was a purely coincidental thing, but it, it actually was a, a nice end of a chapter and a nice chance to start a, a new chapter of life up here in, in Budapest. And having had a long track record with Graphisoft following the student version, we'd introduced things like subscription for ARCHICAD. We'd done a lot of tool development for ARCHICAD and Graphisoft had a a strong respect for me and, and made a position for me to come and join them as the, the global director of business. What were your responsibilities as that role? So the two key projects that I delivered during my time at Graphisoft was launching the ARCHICAD subscription initially in the US and the UK markets. Subsequent to my leaving, it's now worked its way out around the world. And we also took the existing BIM Cloud server client product that they had and, and re-engineered that into a software as a service product. So people didn't need to worry about the IT side of things. Basically, you could 
jump online and say, I want five BIM Cloud users and it will spin up the Google service in the background and host all of that in the cloud. So it was it was very much on rolling out that new wave of technology. Which is the technology we're all using today. Totally. I, I, Graphisoft have moved forward a lot further than when I was there. Yeah. And obviously, subscription is becoming more of a predominant package for them, I guess. Um, but I was always a strong advocate on the fact that architects want choice. If you say, do you want a subscription or nothing? <laughs> You might say you want nothing. If you say you want a perpetual license or subscription license, obviously nothing is still on the table, but (laughs) you opt them A or B and usually you can come up with a solution and that's working well for them. Obviously, it's the way the general industry has moved. There's obviously a lot of connotations around subscription, but from a purely business point of view, I actually do see it as not only a great offering from a person such as myself who's trying to build a profitable business, but for architects who have fluctuations in work, quite often have large teams on projects, but it's only for the life of the project. Obviously, anyone who's been in architecture for more than 10 years has probably been through one downturn. Sure. I can count at least three or four that my businesses have been impacted from and subscription allowing you to scale up when you need to and, and scale down when you have to, I think is immensely flexible for people. So that brought me all the way to Hungary and, and I was running that department for a touch over two years, but it's not a huge organization in global terms, but uh, Graphisoft is a, a larger company than what I'm used to being part of. And what that means is that I'm impatient and move fast. <laughs> and Graphisoft didn't necessarily move quite as fast as someone like myself felt comfortable with. I've got great friends there. It's a great business. It's just, it was time for me to step out and look for new things. When you did move on and for new things, was there something you moved to or did you just say, I need to move on and we're going to go find something new? At that time, it was basically, I'm going to move out. I was starting to get inquiries from other firms. So I decided I would take a step into consulting. I actually continued to consult to Graphisoft on a major Salesforce implementation just to help them. I didn't want to leave them in the lurch in the middle of another big business project. But I then I moved in and, and started helping a variety of other companies. A major one of those was BIM Object based out of Sweden. It involved obviously a hierarchy of people who had also had Graphisoft history in their roots. So a lot of friends and familiar people there. And again, just taking my business knowledge and, and subscription business modeling, those sort of attributes to, to show people how they can introduce subscription or, or transition to subscription. And basically I, I did that not quite for a year and one of the contracts was starting to close down. This was about four months before COVID. So COVID wasn't a trigger for things. It just happens to have yeah. fallen into the story. But by the end of that year, I was starting to look around and I'd had this impression that I'll start something new when we move back to New Zealand. Um, and then I was like, why do I need to move back to New Zealand? What's, <laughs> what, what's the New Zealand part of the equation that, that's compulsory in that? And there, there wasn't anything. Um, I could actually found spaces from Hungary. It was and is a New Zealand business. So I didn't need to be in New Zealand to do that. But it's easier to do business in New Zealand. So I've got all my network of contacts, business associates, accountants, lawyers, all that infrastructure. I could find that here in Hungary, but the the language is always a, a slight barrier to that. So it was just easier to do that. And I had that realization that, hey, I can do this from anywhere in the world. And I was already pre-COVID adamant that I was going to build a remote team. Yeah. So it wasn't that COVID suddenly said, oh, you've all got to work remotely. I 
had my former head of development who had continued with the New Zealand business after the sale, who was interested in looking at new ideas. And so we started putting our heads together. I went to a lot of conferences. I started playing around with the iPad. I guess it's a worthwhile time to mention that iPad was a key part of my decision-making process. I like the iPad. It's a very well-designed piece of equipment and immensely powerful piece of equipment. And coupled with the pencil and the portability, I just felt it was this, not a new device as such. They've been around for near on 10 years now. But if you look at the incumbent players in the architecture business, the SketchUps, the Revit's, the Archicads, they're all desktop-based solutions. Right. SketchUp has obviously released an iPad version recently, but that was only last year. And so we're talking about three years ago now where I was first putting the foundations in place for Spaces. What was the inspiration for Spaces? What was the origin story of Spaces? It was a collision of a lot of things that had happened over my time with Archicad. It was a collision of what I wanted to do. So I wanted to do something with the iPad. That was sort of a given. And so you then start throwing a lot of ideas on. And having had 25 years in the building industry, especially from the technology side of things, that sort of felt that I should do something in that space. I'm not going to go and create software for schools or hospitals or something. It's sort of don't want to need to build a new domain knowledge when I've already got a reasonably sizable domain knowledge. I watched a Rhino Grasshopper Archicad demo, which I must have seen a variation on that dozens of times, but just watching it, maybe because my brain was in the open stage of just exploring ideas and I just watched what was happening and just going, this is wonderful and this is good, but how many architects can really quite grasp that concept of connecting this parameter with that parameter? It looked like a software developers solution for software developers. Right. And and those people who use Grasshopper and Rhino, I think they're amazing. And the way they put models together is absolutely fantastic. But I didn't see it as the general way of doing concept design. Yeah, not super intuitive. You need to learn a lot and have a lot of design technology evolution in your own abilities to be able to do that at a certain level. And you, you need a brain that's highly analytical. Yeah, and and a lot of architects are very analytical, but then you've got the spectrum of architects who are highly creative and and leave the analytical side to to other people. And I guess if I, I looked back at my time with Archicad in New Zealand, we were constantly running Archicad training courses for directors and practice principles, and it was like four hours to find out how you can open someone's model and print it out <laughs> so you can scribble on top of it because they were never going to have the bandwidth right. to be able to learn the software comprehensively. Yeah. Obviously, you have the the very small architects who are one or two people and they have to be extremely hands-on. But as soon as they start getting to the 12, 15, 20, the design people are a bit more design-focused and then they've got the more technician-orientated people to really use the systems behind it. And so there's just this group of people that I felt were being just completely left, basically the void between pen and paper and the BIM system. And because it's a void you got to go left or right. And I have a general feeling that most of those people just went back to pen and paper. Yeah. <laughs> Going forward to CAD was too challenging. Yeah. So I sort of had this collision of ideas and coupled with just some playing around with the iPad and, and testing these theories. I mean, I took a fairly grasshopperish, shall we call it, approach where I just had a dialogue on the side of the screen and I could punch parameters in and the model was creating itself. I wasn't drawing things together and 
tying them together. It was all coded behind the scenes to do essentially the same thing. And then I progressed from there to say, okay, well, we've got a pencil. What can a pencil do for us? And as soon as we started playing with the pencil between myself and my head of development, Ralph, we found out how much it could unlock the freedom of, of what we were trying to do. I couldn't tell you two years ago, we would know how capable it is for what we're doing today. It's been an evolutionary process to just actually see how far we can use the pencil as, a, as an input device. Everyone knows how to use pencil. A lot of people we tend to pick up spaces and try to use the pencil as if it's a mouse. And so they keep the pencil <laughs> on the screen and they draw this, right. this box. But most people, when they sketch, draw a box as four lines. They don't draw it as a continuous line. Let's take a quick break to say thank you to our sponsors for their support of this episode. Accurate data is crucial, especially in today's business environment. Outdated and inaccurate data leads to turnarounds, delays, and rising costs. With supply chain and staffing issues, these costs and delays can multiply. That's why a resource like RCAT.com is so important. RCAT works with manufacturers to keep their data up to date and accurate and offers it to you easily accessible and free. Use RCAT's powerful search engine to find what you need fast and download it right there on their site without needing to pay for anything. It's free. You don't even have to register. So go try RCAT.com today. That's A-R-C-A-T.com. Unlock your full potential as an architect business owner at Entree Architect Network. Since 2013, Entree Architect has been the premier membership community designed exclusively for small firm entrepreneur architects like you. Join a vibrant community of like-minded professionals and gain access to a wealth of resources, mentorship, and support. From comprehensive courses to expert guidance, Entree Architect Network equips you with the necessary tools to thrive in your career, master business strategies, enhance your marketing techniques, and excel in project management, all while fulfilling your continuing education requirements along the way. Break free from the isolation and connect with a supportive network that understands the unique challenges that you face as an architect business owner. Whether you're a startup architect or a seasoned professional looking to make a difference, join us and we will help you elevate your career, boost your confidence, and unlock opportunities for your architecture firm. When our community of entrepreneur architects is linked and leveraged as one, there's no limit to the impact that we can have on the world. Visit EntreeArchitect.com today and become part of our thriving network. Unleash the full potential of your architecture business. Join Entree Architect Network today the premier global business organization for small firm architects. Learn more at entrearchitect.com. If you're trained in CAD, you're trained in lines. And then as you move into BIM and modeling, you're trained in, in elements, right? But it's all these elements, these pieces. It's not intuitive like a sketch. No. Right? You pick up a pen and you take a piece of paper and you're not thinking about how that ink is going to be laid down on that paper, you're just designing, right? You're just taking the idea from your head and it's coming out of your hand. And so using a pencil on an iPad has a very similar intuition on how it's used. Yeah, most definitely. And 
there's a few key points from what you've just said there and the fact that when you pick up a pencil, you're not concerned about the thickness, the color. If you translate that into a BIM system terminology and you're wanting to draw a wall, you have to start making decisions. What color is it? What thickness is it? What material is it? Where's the base level? Where's the top level? All of those decisions are slowing the creative process down. And not only that, at the conceptual design stage, you're not even ready to make those decisions. Right. And so with a, with a line on the iPad, you've defined an interface and you know intrinsically what that is, but you didn't need to think anything more than I just want a, a line from here to here. And, and that line might define the inside or the outside of a building, or it might define a division between two spaces. There's a whole lot of characteristics that you will add to that line <laughs> once you turn it into a building design model in Archicad or Revit, that's where you develop the design. And we wanted to have the speed. An architect who's in the creative flow can think far faster than they can use a computer. Yeah. But they can actually use the pencil essentially at the speed of thought. Exactly. And that's the key, right? That's the, that's the difference between the technologies. Can we go back to what Spaces is, right? Because we talked about the origin story of how it evolved and where we are. but for anybody who doesn't understand what Spaces is, can you sort of give us sort of a quick description of what it is and what it's capable of doing? So very briefly, we define Spaces as a sketch-based conceptual design tool for architects. Every part of that description is kind of essential to what Spaces is. So if, if we want to just do a parallel with a competitor like SketchUp, SketchUp doesn't know if you're drawing a house, a car, a boat, or just scribbling around. We're a building system, so we know that your intention is to design buildings. And so, therefore, it's an architectural concept design tool. It's not just a concept design tool. And it's for architects. It's very clearly for the creative people who are designing. And we've built it, as I've sort of explained, because I felt there was a void. Conceptual design has been tackled by a number of parties. I mean, you've got things like Morfolio Trace, beautiful app, right. wonderful use of the iPad. But again, it's just a two-dimensional sketch. It has got no building intelligence behind it. It looks like a building. It conveys that it's a building, <laughs> but that's as far as it goes. It doesn't tell you that there's 25,000 square foot of convention space and, and 15,000 foot of restaurants and yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And I guess that's the essence of what we're doing is that we're marrying up essentially a digital sketchbook so it's pen and it's digital. And off the back of that, because we can translate drawings into buildings, we can then use the iPad for what it's good for, which is number crunching, and we can start producing data out of that. We sort of had the vision, I guess, that that spaces would be a very data-driven type conceptual design tool, and, and you can use it in that way. But if you're not in a data-driven environment and you just want to sketch you can just sketch in it and you can draw buildings. And I guess the more that we've developed software and the more we've used it, we're starting to see different people using it. And you're going to go through a design process. You're going to go through an ideation stage and a conceptual stage. And tied in with that, there's going to be a lot of feasibility and to decide whether it's worthwhile and, and bits and pieces. And we'll come back to that stage shortly. Then you do get to the point where you've presented it to the main stakeholder and they've validated that you're on the right track and they're keen to push through. And obviously, at that point, you would move through to the sophisticated systems like Revit and Archicad. They're built to provide construction documentation and and they're naturally complex as a result of that end goal. 
And so they very much fit that part of the process. But quite often, that pencil to computer jump is just way too early. And so what we see with spaces is that we we want to provide an opportunity to design more. So more concepting, more exploration, more great buildings, more fulfillment. I mean, being able to look at half a dozen options in an hour, even if you discard all six of those, you've actually learnt little things through that concepting stage. If you suddenly start drawing something in ARCHICAD or wherever, and, and I love those systems, they're great systems. It's, ARCHICAD's been my life. It's, it's a good system and, and Revit has its pros and cons as everything does. I'm pretty agnostic these days, but as soon as you do start moving into that system, you're starting to feel the weight right. of what that system requires. And, and yeah. to get to a similar sort of resolution of design as we can do can take hours. And as you start putting more and more time into it, uh, sometimes coupled with two people because the designer might not be driving the tool, you're suddenly starting to rack up billable hours and, and time and starting to become a little bit reluctant about, uh, eh, not sure I want to keep this one. Should I throw it away? Oh, we've done too much. Whereas part of the ideation stage is actually throwing away ideas. And I see sketch, throw away, sketch, throw away actually as an evolutionary learning process. I don't see redundancy in there. I don't see lost time or lost work. Yeah. That's part of the creative process. It is. It's, it's the entirety of the creative process. <laughs> yeah. If we think about the way we were trained as architects before computers, and that was the way it was done, right? You would have this schematic design phase. That's why it exists, right? Because it was a phase of creation and we would sketch, right? We would have a a roll of trace and we would draw some ideas and those ideas would evolve and you'd put another layer of trace over that trace and you'd sketch some more and through those uh, those evolution through that evolution it would start to become something right it would start to become a design and often some of those layers work and some of those layers don't and so some of those layers get taken off of the board and the good ideas remain and when we learned Often in the side of the corner of the studio was a big pile of crumpled up trace paper, right? Of all those ideas that were great ideas, but didn't work with what you were creating. And, and the thing that ultimately evolves through that process is a great idea, right? Is a great concept, which then moves into the next phase of design development. And because of the way technology has evolved, much of that pre-process, that schematic design process of going through those, all those different iterations of your design, much of that was lost, right? Because of where we've evolved to become with technology. And from what I'm hearing from what you're saying is that we're, we're bringing back some of those old ways of doing it, the, not the old ways of doing it, but the way the creative process is being reintroduced into this design process that is now a technological process, right? That, that it is now all technologically developed. Very few of us are taking a pencil to paper with a sketch before we go into the process. Yeah. New architects are not being trained that way. They're being trained on computer from day one. And Spaces gives us that opportunity to not lose that process of creation. Oh, totally. And, and there's quite a few little points that you made through there that resonate completely with what our, our story is. I mean, obviously, some people can jump straight into the computers these days. And, and if they're being trained at university, then that's interesting. Ironically, my stepdaughter here in, in, in Budapest has just started studying architecture. Great. And she's doing a lot of hand drawing at the moment. And, and to me, that seems a little bit old school, but it, it is actually still a good way 
to learn the fundamentals and not jumping into the computer straight away, I think is actually quite advantageous to give people the right footing. Yeah. But you talked about that sketch, that tracing paper and everything. And, and sometimes you would be conceptualizing an entire form, but quite often you might be just conceptualing one part of a form. Right. For example, you might be doing a shopping mall and it might be closed in on three sides within the city landscape that it's being built into. And so all you're really concerned about from the core design is what does that single elevation look like and how does that interface with the public? Maybe it's, it's got a really busy road outside or it's got a city park and you, you want to play with those relationships. And concept design isn't about necessarily reaching a conclusion for the entire form, but there's key parts of it that you know are going to be critical to the way that design works in its environment or how people respond to that design. And, and having just the ability to try these little things the other part of it, and I referred to this earlier with the Archicad for Directors course, the ability to print out and scribble over the top, that, that's a great way to explore ideas. And, and so we've built that into spaces as well. So even if you don't want to use the modeling part of spaces to the nth degree, you can very quickly mass up a building, which is the right size and shape, and you can carve it and use it like a piece of clay. And then once you've got that, you can throw that into our sketchbook as a background, and, and then you just go back to your red marker pen, or if you're very artistic, then you'll start using all colors of the rainbow and you can start sketching over the top and you can look at what happens if we want to try more of a vertical type facade or a horizontal type facade. And you, and you just trace and trace and go over the top. It's not intelligent data at that stage. It's just exploring, but it's 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 fun. It's, it's where people... It's where the majority of architects want to spend their time. I mean, I know that the point that a building is actually finished and you can look at it is awesome. But between the point where you've conceptualized that and got to that stage is just, it's fraught with stress. <laughs> yeah. Drawings, drawing production, contractors, subcontractors, that whole process. I mean, that's obviously a core part of the business, but we have a feeling that this conceptual design stage has just been shrunk down to a minimum with time constraints, budget constraints. And, and we really want to try to push that space, that void bigger, give more time to explore things. And, and being able to do it on an iPad means that you don't have to be in the office. You can be on the subway, you can be at the beach, you can be at the coffee shop, you can even be on the site looking at the site, scribbling down ideas. You can take photos with your iPad, drop them straight into spaces just so you've got sort of a digital notebook there of ideas and capturing information to use. And so the way I understand is that once you've gone through that design process with spaces, because it's building focused, right? It's, we're talking about you know creating buildings. Those sketches then can start to have data, right? That information which can then very easily be translated to BIM, right? So it's not like a SketchUp model where you, maybe you do some ideation in SketchUp and then, okay, that's a great idea. Let's start over in ARCHICAD because there's no real connection between the two. Is that the idea with spaces that you do have this creative process, but it flows into the BIM process rather than this abrupt transition where you have to stop this creative process and now start this new BIM process? Yeah, most definitely. I mean, from our perspective, we we certainly, to a large extent, feel that we're trying to carve out a piece of the design process and yeah. be the leaders in that space and the first to really have this concepting tool. But to actually carve out a space in the workflow, you need to be able to integrate with that workflow. Right. And so from very early on, we've had an IFC export 
where the building geometry, all the spaces, the columns and the slabs. So we've got some sort of architectural forms that you can use to embellish the design. They all transfer through IFC. We have a cladding tool, which allows you to very quickly try different cladding styles on your building. At this stage, we don't export that through IFC because each BIM system has its own way of managing that sort of thing that to try to (laughs) mirror those things together becomes quite difficult. The irony is that we've been to a number of trade shows and, and when we talk to people about this IFC and everything, they like it. It ticks a box, shall we say. But they actually see how fast that they can create something in spaces that they, they sort of go, oh, well, I can create things so fast that who, who cares if I have to draw it from scratch? Whereas even your reference to SketchUp, you can create great SketchUp models. And, and I'll be perfectly honest that SketchUp versus spaces today, and that's today, not the future, but <laughs> today you can create a far more rich, detailed model in SketchUp. But that in itself will still take hours or days. Yeah, And so therefore, when you do have to start recreating that in the BIM system of your choice, you do feel as though you're starting again. So it's been quite interesting to have the feedback from people who just sort of say, oh, look, you you can throw things together so quickly in spaces, we wouldn't mind if we had to draw it from scratch. But the flip side is we need to show that we're integrated and and we're going to double down on that. We've actually done a proof of concept at the moment where we allow Archicad to open a spaces file directly. Mm-hmm. which will just give us a far more rich data import. Coming back to the concept of data-driven design, um, we do cater for what I would call a niche within the conceptual design stages when you're working with very brief directed buildings, for want of a better description. So it might be a hospital or a school and they have a very strict list of requirements. They have a certain type of room or a certain number of rooms and requirements around the sizes of those rooms. Spaces allows you to create that brief and as you're, as you're drawing the building and creating the spaces, you can be linking the requirements and it shows you whether you're matching the requirement or not. And we've got a traffic light system that shows your plus or minus 2%, plus or minus 5%. But linking that to the next stage, all of that space information, not just the shape of those spaces, but the metadata attached with it that says this is a classroom This is a technology room, this is a toilet facility, a canteen, whatever. That metadata all comes through the IFC as well. So putting that data into spaces, you can have that through the duration of the project. Yeah. The other part of our vision, just with regards to integration, is the fact that while at the moment you might sort of consider conceptual design as a stage and then develop design as a stage, we we don't necessarily see a black and white or a hard line handover. And as we go forward, we want to explore ideas as to how the designers can continue to design in spaces, even if there is a BIM model that's being created already. Yeah, that's very interesting. Could be a hospital which has got multiple buildings. And so some of them, I mean, quite often, (laughs) every hospital in New Zealand that I know of, the car park was built first because it's obviously the... (laughs) the easiest thing to design and it's very programmatic and based on a lot of rules. And so let's get that underway. Meanwhile, the emergency department's still being designed and the hospital theater systems or whatever. Yeah. And so we want to be able to look at ways to be able to run spaces and BIM systems in parallel. And so there's no need. I love the idea of thinking, redesigning the design workflow, right? That much of what we do today is a is a carryover from the way it was done pre-computer, right? The entire five-phase process is 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 a remnant of the way we used to do it. And um, 
because you had to do it that way, right? You had to create a certain thing up to a certain point because now you have to start doing the drawings for design development. And then you had to do the drawings for construction documents. And there was this very rigid uh, separation between each phase. And with technology, it doesn't necessarily need to be that way. It could be that way. It might be the best way. But because we have new ways of doing things, I love the way that Spaces is looking at the design workflow from scratch and saying, how can we reinvent this? How can we do this better now with the technology that we have? Keep what's good with that process, but then sort of reinvent the things that are really just inefficient holdovers from the way we used to do it. Yes, exactly. I mean, obviously, time constraints these days mean the hard handovers aren't necessarily so easy. You want to keep designing as long as you can. And so sometimes the deadlines to move to develop design, you want to push them to the absolute limit. But another core part of what we're we're doing, and and anyone who's in the in the business will obviously have an appreciation for this, is just the early design stage of a building is where certain fundamentals of that building's performance become locked in. The energy, carbon, probably not to the same degree, because obviously embedded carbon is a, has a lot to do with materiality. But we're going to explore that yeah. as well. But one of the issues in the in the marketplace these days is that most of the analysis software requires a BIM model. Right. <laughs> and by the time you've got a BIM model, you're a bit too late in the process to yes. to make significant changes. And so, I mean, we we have to juggle all our priorities. We're just a small team. We recently raised a, a good venture capital round, so it gives us the runway to continue to develop our vision. But we see spaces sitting really at the the core of this conceptual process and, and being able to use the data that we generate to test for these different energy simulations. Is it wind? Is it daylight? Is it solar gain? What have you? And the interesting thing is that even though we're not dealing with walls and floors and ceilings and everything, those analysis systems don't really care about that. They just need to know that there's a transition point <laughs> from the inside to the outside. And, and what is the transmission value it just says oh, I need an R value. I've got an R value of six or whatever, just a random number. Right, interesting. It doesn't need to know that it's four inches thick or 12 inches thick. You just assign that data to that line. Exactly. And that line now represents what that future wall might be. Exactly. So those two wall thicknesses will have different transmission values, but you only need the transmission value plus the position of that wall and the internal area and volume associated with that. So even though we're not a complicated BIM system. We have a very lightweight geometric engine, which is it's suited to the, the iPad, but it's actually still powerful enough to do all that analysis. And this again comes back to being able to create more great buildings. I mean, what's a great building? It might look great, but if it's cold or it's too hot right. because it's it's not sunny or it's too sunny or or it's it's exposed to the wind, then even great architecture can can get a bad rap if it doesn't actually perform well. So we see great opportunity there to be able to validate a lot of these things before you've locked yourself into them. And that's the worst thing you can do is find that, oh, we've made these decisions where the building is going to be like this. <laughs> and we've just been told that the energy performance is crap. So we're going to have to either throw in lots more heaters or lots more air conditioning units, which is a bit of a cynical <laughs> fix. <laughs> right. But uh, those are the things that we want people to be able to see and having spaces as the center to that sort of universe of tools. And there's more and more of those tools as technology advances. We have a strong feeling that while we obviously want to be successful with spaces and we want it to be a core tool that architects use, 
we certainly recognize that the architecture practice of the 21st century is using a stack of software. It's, it's no longer I'm an Archicad user. I'm a Revit user. It's a, right. I'm an Archicad and a twin motion and, and I use a bit of this and I use a bit of that. And it's a bit of a horses for courses. Get the, find the software. I mean, I, I always say that today, if Archicad was engineered from start to finish today, it probably wouldn't have photo rendering. In the 90s, it needed to do a bit of everything. Right. But today, there's such amazing rendering systems, Unreal Engine, Twin Motion, Atlantis, all of those great systems that if Archicad was making business decisions or Revit, it would be like, well, do we do we bother with any of this? But yeah. they're legacy systems. And, and I guess that's a large extent of what we're doing is that the big incumbents in the market are long-term legacy systems. They've tried to move into the space that we are occupying but they bring the weight of their solution with them. It's still got its same way of working, its same way of dealing with things. And we sort of took a very opposite view on life, I guess. And, and I guess that's part of our name at the moment, spaces, and the fact that we inhabit spaces. The spaces are created by walls and elements and everything, but it's actually the space that we occupy. We don't occupy a wall or a slab. So we wanted to break down that convention that these BIM systems have and just say, hey, look, we're going to have an entrance space and a conference space and a restaurant space and do that with lines and quickly create those forms without needing to think about, oh, what's the floor that's going to be supporting this? What's the wall that's going to be separating this? All those decisions are downstream. Is there a trial version? Yes, there's, there's actually a free version. So Spaces is free. Right. You get the bulk of the features for free. It is limited to two projects. So we feel that after you've created a couple of projects and maybe deleted them and created a couple more, that eventually you might decide that $20 a month is worth it so you can keep your designs. And so we have a project restriction on the free version and we don't allow exporting from that free version. So again, if you're, you're going to start using it for commercial benefit, then yeah. we'd like to think that there's a bit of value there that we can take account of. And so then you can do a 14 day trial and we have a, $20 a month and a $35 a month plan so people can review those on the website. Right. But things like IFC are part of our professional plan, but the professional plan allows you to buy floating licenses. So we realize that concept design isn't a 24-7 or even 40-hour-a-week job for people. So being able to buy a few licenses and share them around the team makes it convenient. But the free version's there, our prime business focus at the moment is just get as many people using the free version as, as we can because more people use it, the more feedback we get and that circle builds inertia and, and we all benefit from it. Yeah. So I love that. I love that it's not, I mean, it is slightly limited, but it's it's a full version, basically the free version. You can download it, start using it unlimited. You know, we have two projects, but you can sort of just keep using it until you realize that this is part of your workflow and then you can purchase a, a license and use it as part of your workflow. Exactly. I love that sort of innovative way of delivering it to your customer as well. So if you're interested, you can go to spacesapp.io is the website, spacesapp.io, and you can download a free version of Spaces and, and go give it a try and see how it works. Campbell, before we wrap up, I'd love to get your take on the final question that I ask all my guests. You've been through quite a story in several businesses and and currently in the process of developing a new business, what is your thought on what is one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? 
It's a very challenging question, and you planted that seed right before the podcast. And fortunately, I haven't been distracted for the last 50 minutes dwelling it over. (laughs) I guess I would sort of say two things, but I see them as connected. and, and, And this is very much from my own personal journey and my personal way of working is that constantly be open to fresh ideas and read. I don't find I have enough time to read. I've got a a special email folder in my mail system where I throw the emails and and links that I want to read and it's always overflowing. My team will tell you just about every Monday meeting, I said, I was reading a book about this or I was reading a book (laughs) about that. Yeah. And sometimes it seems like I'm, I'm a person who reads something and adopts everything out of the book, but it's not like that at all. I'm, I'm open to ideas and whether you read, whether you watch videos, whether you listen to podcasts, just being open to to what you're listening to, reading, there's always going to be some element in there that you can apply to your business and help make it better. And it's not to say that every person who writes a book knows exactly what they're doing. There's as many ideas in the books that I disagree with as I do agree with, but it's always picking the ones that resonate with your business and your thinking. And just being open to the fact that as a business to survive, you need to evolve and evolving is being in a state of constant learning. I'm always learning. I'm always challenging myself to learn more and do more. And yeah, it's what invigorates me. His name is Campbell Yule. The company is Spaces. You can learn more about the app and all the things that Spaces can do on your iPad at spacesapp.io. We will have all that information, including the link on the show notes for this episode. You can just go to the show notes for this episode. You can click the link and you can find the app. Campbell, thank you. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you for your dedication to the profession all these years, helping to evolve the technology that many of us are using today and to sort of help us reinvent the way that we do work today with Spaces app. I appreciate you out there working hard and developing this new technology. And I appreciate you coming by here and telling your story and sharing your knowledge at Entree Architect Podcast. It's wonderful. Thanks very much, Mark. It's been uh, great having a chat to you. I look forward to the people who listen to your podcast jumping on our website and and taking spaces for a test drive. And just want to finish that we are a a young, new company. I talked about education as being a major pillar for our business, and and we do have free versions for education. But uh, another major pillar is is customers and feedback. I've always put customers at the very center of everything that I do. So no matter how big or small the issue may feel, if there's things that you can't quite understand or you're confused about or just you've got ideas for spaces, then I love to hear from you and you'll be able to contact me via the website. So don't be afraid. Download it, play with it, get in touch. Look forward to having you on the journey. Yeah, that's great. I'm sure that many will because there is quite a buzz about spaces in our community. Several members of our community have brought the app into the conversations that we have on the Facebook group and there is quite a buzz. So I'm sure after this episode, you'll probably have quite a few people uh, saying hello. So thank you. I appreciate you. Have a great day. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Catch you later. Hey, Campbell, welcome back. Hey, great to be here again, Mark. Great to see you uh, on the video. And uh, it was fantastic to actually meet you face to face a month ago back in San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. We hung out a little bit in uh, at the AIA convention. Um, and and at the convention, you had shared with me some very exciting news uh, about your company and about your app. It's been a few months since we recorded the episode that everyone just listened to. And I wanted to invite you back to just do a quick update because so much has happened. I wanted to give you an opportunity 
to share the news. So what's going on? Yeah, well, uh, three months is a, a very long time in the life of a startup. Uh, I mean, we're now approaching three years old and uh, we did a review of our brand and we're extremely excited and proud to uh, release a new brand. So Spaces is now known as Co-Design. All right. This was something we were actually working on when I recorded the podcast with you three months ago and, and some of the ideas that we were th- thinking about made their way into that uh, recording that everyone's just listened to. But it was a bit premature for us to announce the new name at that stage. And uh, we're really excited about this. We've been receiving really great feedback. We were at the AIA, as you just mentioned. We were able to give people a bit of a sneak peek. And we we continued that theme. And a couple of weeks after AIA, I was in Los Angeles for a Tech Plus event where I was actually really excited to be able to launch the brand officially. Spaces has been uh, destined to the dustbin. It was a wonderful name and it uh, served us very well. And, and being a, uh, a startup founder, then things like the name is a quite precious thing. Uh, it's a bit of a baby for me. So uh, sure. we didn't take it lightly with changing the name, but we certainly felt with where we've come from, where we're going, we needed to reestablish what we were all about. Uh, co-design obviously is just a, a shortened version of conceptual design. Um, but at the same stage, it brings a lot more to the party than just conceptual design. Uh, there's a lot of co-words, communicate, collaborate, contextualize. Uh, For sure. So we're really happy with how that works. And and ultimately, one of the big things is we want co-design to become your co-partner. Uh, we're very strong advocates for the designer still remaining absolutely key and central to all architectural work. Uh, and they need tools that support them, not tools that do work for them. There's some aspects of the design process, I think, that will be benefiting from some of these hypes around AI. Uh, but I'm a purist when it comes to design and, and believe that the architecture's uh, knowledge, experience, uh, all of their life experiences come back and, and bring about a building that uh, suits what their, their clients are requesting. And, and I still believe that that's a, a humanized role. Uh, so we like co-design as a partner to that role, but really still positioning the designer core and central to the process. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, I think architecture is at its root a human-to-human experience, and co-design is a great name. Where can our listeners find you now if the name has changed and the, the contact information is probably changing with it? How do, how do we find you? Uh, everything still works, the, the old domain names that may have been mentioned in the previous podcast, but we do have a new domain name now, which uh, everything will point to, and that is getcodesign.co. All right, getcodesign.co. We'll have the link to that on the show notes. All right, well, anything else you want to share before you uh, sign off? Uh, no, just the the only thing is that uh, obviously it's great to reconnect. Uh, look forward to your listeners getting to listen to what we recorded three months ago. It is a long time in the life of a startup and uh, the launch of the brand was the first step and uh, the team and I are currently working on actually transforming the Spaces application into co-design. So what would have been the version three of Spaces is soon to hit the App Store. It'll be the first version of the product that's uh, branded and and updated as co-design. As I mentioned, we're a three-year-old startup. It's uh, a bit of a major rewrite for the user interface. The the tools we've added to the software over that time we start pushing the old interface to its limits. So uh, a new brand and a new opportunity to uh, relaunch what we're really excited about. So that's going to be coming in early August. So people can feel free to download spaces today, have a play around, and that will just transition through to co-design in the next few weeks. So uh, get to it. 
All right. We're excited about it. It's an exciting app. It's a, a an exciting program that you've put together. And so I'm encouraging people to go check it out at getcodesign.co. And we'll have to keep everybody updated as things uh, progress. We'll have you come back on the show and talk some more about how things are going. Sounds fantastic. We've got a huge roadmap in front of us, co-design, and, and this next version in the next few weeks is just a, a foundation for some of the plans that we've got. So you'll see elements of that during August, but the, the real life of version three, as we're calling it, is, is actually the, the upcoming 12-month roadmap uh, releasing every two to three weeks. We've got a whole series of tools that we want to bring out. Uh, got some quite exciting things sitting there, which we previewed for some people. So definitely a time to get in there and explore and, and get excited about it. All right. Well, thanks for coming by and, uh, and sharing the updates. Exciting news. Thanks very much. Thanks very much, Mark. Great to talk again. You're welcome. If you liked this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, please share a five-star rating, write a quick review, and share a link to this episode with a friend because that is how Entree Architect has grown to serve thousands more architects just like you. By sharing a rating, write a review, share a link to this episode with a friend. I appreciate you for that. Thank you to all our sponsors for this episode, RCAT and Entree Architect Network. Links to sponsors and all the resources we discussed today are available at the show notes for this episode and every episode found at entrearchitect.com slash podcast. Entree Architect is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network, the next evolution of interactive media and resources for the AEC community and beyond. You can now earn continuing education credits for listening to this podcast. Select episodes of Entree Architect Podcast are approved for AIA continuing education credit. Learn more about our new Gable Members program at gablemedia.com slash members. That's G-A-B-L media.com slash members. Thank you for listening to this episode of Entree Architect Podcast. My name is Mark Arlapage. Love, learn, and go share what you know. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders, Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. 
And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh the one that God. came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.